You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. I wonder how many of us have ever stopped to ask the question, what is the tone of my home? What's the general character of my family and our life together? What's the dominant mood in our household? What's it like to be one of us, to be part of us as a family unit? I'm tempted (laughs) to invite you to just shout out one-word answers to those questions, but I won't. You can hold your tongue. But I wonder what sort of words would come to mind, and what are the words that are coming to mind for you today? Peaceful? Is that the mood of my home? Or chaotic? (laughs) Depends on what day of the week, maybe, or what time of day. Is my home busy? Conflicted? Happy? Quiet? Disciplined? Fun? Any number of words like that could describe each of our homes. And surely many of us would choose different words to describe the tone of our homes. I wonder, though, how many of us would immediately respond to that question, like, what's the character of my home? What's the tone of my home? with something like Christ-centered or gospel-driven. Are those the words that come to mind first? And if not, why not? Because when we come to the Scriptures, and when we come to those passages of Scriptures that are addressed specifically at our homes and to the different relationships we have in our homes. Two weeks ago, we reflected on Paul's uh, instructions to husbands and wives and how they relate to each other with this other-oriented, self-giving love. We spent time reflecting on that aspect of a household and relationship. Now, today, we hear him address himself to children and fathers Slaves and masters, you may be wondering what we're going to do with that. We'll get there in just a second. (laughs) But again, very much as we work through this, we'll see that there's this this Jesus-embodying, other-oriented love marked by integrity. All the way through, Paul looks at the church as a whole and then addresses himself to the homes that make up the church It says, here's what the character of your household, your family life, should be like. The thing that kind of rises to the surface when we hear what Paul says specifically to us as parents. The thing that just runs through the course again and again and again is that we love our kids the best by giving them the gospel first. If I'm going to love my kids, I can do a lot of things for them. The priority is giving them the gospel. Not just saying it, 
but embodying it. So as we work through our text today and we reflect on parenting, fatherhood, motherhood, what does it look like for me to orient my home in a way so that my kids go to college having been immersed in a gospel-saturated home? Now, you may be saying, preacher, I don't have kids at home. I don't have kids. <laughs> Why am I even here? What's this all about? And in the same way, earlier in our series through Ephesians, when Paul addressed himself to husbands and wives, we recognize not everybody is a husband or a wife. There are some categories other than that, even though Scripture addresses itself to these specific roles and relationships today. That doesn't mean this isn't fruitful for all of us. So maybe you're a grandparent and you don't have children at home, but you're watching your kids raise their kids, and you see their struggle, and you can sympathize with that, and maybe sometimes you say, serves you right, kind of thing. <laughs> but by making yourself a student of the Scriptures and reflecting on what it looks like and what it means to be a faithful Christian parent, Grandparents are in a position to pray uniquely for your kids and grandkids. You're in a position to offer them encouragement. Maybe a little bit of advice. Scripture-based wisdom. So even though the text is not addressing itself specifically to grandparents, it doesn't mean it's not useful for you in this instance. At the very least, you'll know better how to pray for your kids and grandkids. There are others in the room who don't have kids and never will. <laughs> and you're thinking, what do I do with this, preacher? I mean, I'm not in these categories. And I can't help but think about our baptismal vows in moments like that. Right? When, when a child is baptized, the community together makes a covenant. Not just the parents with God, but the entire community. All the baptized say, we're on board to help you nurture your kids in the covenant because they're not just your kids, they're a part of this family. The family of Jesus. The body of Christ. And so you don't have kids, you never will, but there's kids in the room. <laughs> and we need your help. Trust me. We need. <laughs> we need your help. <laughs> we need your help. Caring for our children. It's not a one-man show or a two-person show. We need your help in the nursery. We need your help in Sunday school. We need your help at VBS, don't we? <laughs> you don't have to have kids to come help at VBS. In fact, we need everybody. And so you're in a position to spend some time reflecting on what it's like and, and, and what Jesus wants for the children in the church to grow into faithful adults. You don't ever have to have children to be a part of that mission. Some of you, our third category, don't have kids now, but one day you will. And to you, I'll simply say, it's never too early to start thinking about what the tone of your home is going to be like when you have children. It's never too early. If you're thinking, hey, one day I want to have a family, then you need to be thinking, 
What's that going to look like, and how are we going to saturate our home with the gospel and the glory of Jesus? So that's where we are. One other thing I want to kind of give us a little space to reflect on before we get into specifically children and parents is the question, like, what do we do with all the slave master stuff? And this is just one of those texts where we really feel the distance between the 21st century and the 1st century. We don't have slaves. It's been a couple of generations since that was even legal. And it's not a constant kind of, like, we're not, we don't need Paul's advice on how to relate in those matters. So, so what does the church do with a text like this? I'll say first, sometimes the church does really bad things with texts like these. Things it ought not do. In Antebellum South, the church used this text specifically to justify enslaving human beings. White slave owners in the South took Ephesians 6, 5, slaves obey your earthly masters, and said, see? That's not how the church should use this text. We should <laughs> confess that. We should condemn it. And we should call anyone who thinks perhaps we should read it that way to repentance. Sometimes the church takes texts like this and says, you know, slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't as bad because it sounds kind of like Paul is endorsing things here and we know it's been used that way, but it's not the same thing. It wasn't as bad. And I wish that were true, but it's not. Like slavery in the ancient world, owners had, masters had life or death power over their slaves. Sometimes people would indenture themselves or sell themselves into slavery because the slave of a high-ranking official certainly had a more comfortable life than a subsistence-living free person who lived day-to-day and wasn't sure where their next meal might come from. But by and large, throughout the ancient world, slavery was horrifying. It wasn't better. It's important to remember that slavery in the ancient world was different in some ways from kind of the history in the United States. For one thing, in the ancient world, slavery was not a matter of ethnicity. It wasn't one uh, ethnicity was the slaves and another was the masters. Romans enslaved Romans. It was more a matter of class than it was ethnicity. So it's important to remember some of those kinds of things. It's also important to remember that in the ancient world, slavery was an assumed cultural good. It was just part of life. Uh, It's easy for us sometimes to kind of slide into our bubble where we have our cultural values and we don't really think about what it's like to be from somewhere else or another place. The first time I went to Central America and I discovered that it was a part of the culture to traffic your daughters to help pay the bills. I was a little bit surprised. Let me rephrase that. I was blown out of my mind that it was just taken for granted as just part of life and a positive good that this is what you do. For us, that's crazy. 
and sinful. <laughs> Not just for us, it's sinful. But there are cultural things, cultural sins that get deeply embedded, and the gospel needs to root those out. In the ancient world, slavery was one of those things. It was just assumed. This is good, it's fine, it's the way the world is. Some of the ancient philosophers just, you know, some people are by nature slaves. And some by nature aren't. And they just assumed that's the way the world was. What we have here in Paul is not an endorsement of that. It is a recognition of the reality. If Paul had said something like, hey, set your slaves free, it would be sort of like me telling you, hey, turn in your cell phone. No one would take that seriously. Right? So what does Paul do? He basically says to the slaves, hey, just keep your head down. <laughs> like, don't make trouble for yourself. I mean, you could cause problems and you could rebel and, and you know, maybe that's justified, but it certainly isn't safe. So instead, keep your head down, obey. Consider the service you render as service to Jesus. Your circumstances are not favorable, but trust the Lord will honor you. The real countercultural thing he says comes in what he says to masters in verse 9. And this is the crucial thing I want you to see, and then we'll talk about parenting. Masters do the same to them. Treat them with integrity. Stop threatening them. Like that, in the ancient world, like nobody thinks that a master should not threaten their slaves. You can kill them if you want to. What's a, big, what's a threat here or there? So Paul says, don't threaten your slaves because both of you have a master. And you can kind of see what he's doing here. He's saying, hey, look, I know that you are in a position of authority and social hierarchy where you have life or death power over this person, but don't forget, you are not God. You have a master in heaven, and both of you are on equal ground before him. And here's the thing. There are some cultural sins that are so deeply embedded and we don't even see them which is a good reason to maybe ask, what are our cultural sins that are so deeply embedded we don't see them? <laughs> Talk about that another time, but ask the question. There's some cultural sins that are so deeply embedded, we don't even see them. They have to come to light, we have to see them, and then it takes sometimes centuries for the gospel to take them down. And by the 1800s, you have people like William Wilberforce in England, the abolitionist movement in North America, people that John Wesley commended for their work. Look it up sometimes. Look up John Wesley's letter to William Wilberforce where he's like, dude, keep up the good work. This is unholy and you got to do the job of abolition. The church realized it was our job to call for justice for the oppressed. To speak for those who have no voice. And it took centuries, friends, almost two millennia. But when Paul laid the axe to the foot of the tree, a very, very, very big tree, several hundred years later, it finally fell. Paul, with his countercultural instructions to masters and other texts in the New Testament, Philemon is one, get into that another time, took the axe to the root of a very big 
deep-rooted tree that took 1,800 years to fall. But the church brought it down eventually. There's still slavery in our world today, even if it's not institutionalized and state-sponsored. Human trafficking is modern-day slavery. And if you want the church to figure out what its vocation is in that regard, spend some time thinking and praying about that. Paul's call for masters in the world they live in is to consider the other. Deny yourself. Don't give in to that threatening attitude. Check your attitude and embody Jesus. And over time, the gospel bore long-term fruit. Let's spend time talking about something that's a little more day-to-day applicable for us. Beginning of Ephesians, Paul addresses himself first to children and then to fathers. I didn't plan to read this passage on Mother's Day with Paul addressing himself to fathers. Just sort of worked out that way, but here we are. (laughs) Children, obey your parents, he says, in the Lord, for this is right. So kids in the room, let me see you. Where are my kids? Not just my kids, all the kids. See some anyone in the home with your parents. Some of you still are, yes, for a couple more weeks. Some of you have a few years left. Right here, let me see those hands. You have your hand up, you're in the home with your parents. The Bible is talking to you. Okay? The Bible's talking to you right now. And what does it say? It says, you have the responsibility and the privilege to help set the tone in your home. Here's what that means. Kids, you can make it a mess if you want to, right? You know that. I don't have to tell you that. You can make it a chaotic disaster if you want to, and you know how. Right now, the parents are like, are we really naming this? Seriously? (laughs) We all know it's true. You know mom and dad's buttons. You know how to push them. And you can crank it up if you want to. And you know when you do that it usually doesn't go well, right? Things get crazy. A lot of frustration happens. Sometimes you lose privileges. Sometimes you lose toys. Sometimes you get grounded. Some other things happen. But for some reason, you still do it next time. I haven't figured that part out yet, but it's true in my home. So I assume it's true in yours. So what what does the Bible invite you to do? Parents, just tune out for a second if you want to. It's fine. This is me and the kids. We're talking. Young adults. What does the Bible want you to do? So what, what does Paul say? Children, obey your parents. You think, man, that's cramping my style. Really? That's like... That's the first thing Paul says to me. Hang on a second. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. Here's here's the way I want you to see that. I want kids, right? Let me see those hands one more time. You out there? Everybody? Who's the youngest? Anybody two? They're probably in the nursery. Four-year-olds. Any four-year-olds in the room? Two! We got a two-year-old. Pay attention. 
Paul's talking to you. Who's the oldest? We got some 17-year-olds, right? We got some 18-year-olds still at home, though, for a little bit. That's good. You get Here's what he said. Here's, here's the way I want to invite all of us to see this, right? You ready? You good? We're good? Think of your home as the primary place where you learn to follow Jesus and obey him. Remember that great commandment Jesus talked about? Any of you kids remember the great commandment? There were two things Jesus said. Hope you remember. I saw that hand go up. You can shout it if you want to. Love who? Everybody help me out, kids. Come on. Love who? Love God, right? Love God first. I see some heads nodding. Roan, yep. And then what? Love who else? Love your neighbors. If you can learn to do that at home, you can learn to do it anywhere. Okay? If you can learn to honor Jesus in your relationship with mom and dad, when you get to college or high school or work, you'll already know how to do it. It's a lot better to learn it now, and it'll be a lot harder to learn it later. So Jesus has given you, look, kids, I'm still, we're still talking to kids. Parents, you can tune out. Kids, hands, you there? Hanging in there. Jesus has given you your mom and your dad so that you can learn how to love God and love your neighbor. And if you love your mom and dad and you honor them and you love them as your neighbor, neighbor that lives in your house, not next door, then you'll begin learning what it's like to honor Jesus. And you're learning how to obey him because he's the one that instructed us to do that. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That's what that means. Jesus is creating space for you to learn how to obey him. And it's safe space to do that, isn't it? Because your parents love you. And they want you to grow into healthy, mature, Jesus-loving people. Right? That's what we want for our kids. It's what I want for my kids. It's what your parents want for you. And so there's space there. We can make some space. Before it gets, like, it's not as easy out there. Like when you get to school, like middle school, that's a tough place to be, isn't it? <laughs> Sports teams, if you haven't already learned how to love God and love your neighbor, when you get out there, it's going to be a little bit harder to do, won't it? College, career, it gets harder. And so Jesus has said, here's some space while you're little. You get 18 years or so where you can learn how to obey me with people who care about you. Because not everybody out there cares about you. But these people, they love you more than you can imagine. They're going to help you become a follower. And here's the thing, kids. In that instance, still talking to the kids. You there, kids? Good. Just making sure we're still, parents are still tuned out. You have an opportunity in that moment, right? Mom and dad are getting a little upset. You probably left your toys out. They want you to pick them up. You don't want to. Why would you want to? No one ever wants to clean up their toys. 
But in that moment, you can do one of two things, right? You can either crank up the chaos, right? And we all know how to do that. Or you can obey Jesus. And what happens if you obey Jesus? Do you get chaos? No, 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 you get peace. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. And you learn a little bit more what it feels like to love God and your neighbor, just like Jesus said to do by loving your parents and honoring them. Create some habits then, doesn't it? Still talking to the kids. You guys there? Holt, good. Holt's on board here. The next time, probably this afternoon, going to be lunchtime. You got to wash your hands. Nobody wants to wash their hands when they get home. What are you going to do? Peace or chaos? Let me ask you this, kids. Let's have a vote, and I hope this goes the right way. What do you like better, peace or chaos? Peace? Hands for peace? I was afraid of this. <laughs> hands for chaos. You know, I knew one was going to do it, right? It was going to happen, right? Think of your homes as space that Jesus has given you to learn how to live into that great commandment. Love God, love your neighbor, start with your folks. Okay? It's not always easy. In fact, that's kind of the point. <laughs> it's going to be hard, but it's the most important thing. It is the most important thing. And that's where you learn how to respond to the gospel. If you can learn to love your parents, you can learn to love Jesus. You can learn to honor them. You can learn to follow the Lord. And he's giving you a little space. Safe space where that can happen. And if you do, the promise of God is blessing. It'll be good for you. Jesus will care for you. Jesus will love you in that way. He will bless you. So Paul addresses himself to children first, then he addresses himself to fathers. Everything he says here is easily applicable to fathers and mothers, so ladies, you don't get off the hook on this. But it's interesting to me that he addresses himself to the fathers specifically. Because sometimes dads, right, we can, let me talk to just the dads for a minute, moms, you can tune out. We like to farm this out sometimes, don't we? <laughs> Ask your mother. <laughs> We don't get to farm it out, though. Paul says, dads, here's what it takes. You want your kids to be the kind of people who honor Jesus? Here's what you got to do. And he plays it out in a negative and a positive. Here's what you don't do. And here's what you do. The first thing you don't do is provoke your children. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you've ever provoked your children. I'll be the first one to raise my hand. I have provoked my children. I do it far too frequently. Very easy to do, isn't it, guys? Yeah. Don't they know I'm exhausted? Don't they know how many people called me to complain about something today while I was at work? Don't they know I have a meeting tonight? I just need to grab a bite to eat and get back because I got stuff to do and it's crazy at the house. In moments like that, it's very easy to provoke. Do not, he says, provoke your children to anger. Why are you crying over that? Why are you f grow up? Sound familiar? 
tough dads, right? That's our cultural assumption, isn't it? How do my kids respond when I take that kind of tone to them? Usually in one of two ways. They will either take the same tone back to me, been there, pops, dads, and that's not what I want from them, then I just get worse. Or they crumble. You ever seen your kids crumble? You don't want to crumble your children, folks. You don't want to crumble your kids. For me, it comes out in two ways, usually. Maybe some others, but primarily two. Number one, selfish anger. I'm Irish. I used to have red hair. We have a temper. And I get frustrated. The energy you get on Sunday mornings, imagine what it's like when I'm angry about something, right? The Bible says not to do that. It's very hard sometimes. But when I do that, I'm not giving my kids the gospel. Because God doesn't come to me when I mess up or even when I just straight up rebel against him and smack me around, does he? Doesn't mean he's not stern. Doesn't mean he's not corrective. But he's never vengeful. Never. And so if I embody vengeance to my kids, I am not loving them and I'm not giving them the gospel because I'm not embodying the character of Jesus to them. When I do that, it is crucial for me to confess it and repent. Confess it to them and repent in front of them so that they can see what it looks like when a sinner gets forgiven. That gives them the gospel. So there is hope. We feel bad when we disobey the scriptures and provoke our children. But even in those moments of our sin, Jesus gives us grace to show our kids what the gospel looks like because the gospel requires confession and repentance. And if I've mouthed off at my kids and provoked them sinfully, then I am in a position to very quickly, when the Spirit of God convicts me, to go to them and say, kids, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I should not have said that. It was sin. Will you forgive me? And if they can see that in their dad, chances are they'll be able to do it later. Because after all, we learn by imitation, don't we? <laughs> for better or worse. The second thing for me, sometimes it's selfish anger. Other times it's sarcasm. If it hasn't been a long day and I'm just sort of feeling cheeky, get sarcastic. I found they don't respond well to that either. One of two things happen. They either get sarcastic back with me, which is not helpful, but after all, you learn by imitation, don't you? For better or worse. Or they crumble. You don't want to crumble your kids. So Paul says, fathers, don't do the kinds of things that give the sin in your kid's heart room to grow. Because that's what's happening here, right? 
It's like, hey, there's sin in my heart. And there are some circumstances that are bringing that sin out. And I can either offer it to Jesus and repent, or I can cultivate the sin and live into that. And then that takes my kids and finds some sin that's down in their hearts, because they got plenty of that. You know, I don't have to tell you that. But it brings it out and gives their sin room to cultivate. And that just makes more room for my sin to cultivate. And that just makes more room for their sin to cultivate. And all of a sudden, the tone of our home is consumed with sin and chaos and darkness. And everybody's just furious about each other. And nobody's obeying Jesus by loving God and one another. We're just consumed with our own agenda. We're consumed with our own priorities. We're consumed with, it's my house and my way, and this is what I want, and I'm going to get it. Right? I'm assuming we've all been there. (laughs) We do not want to cultivate sin in the lives of our children, do we? I mean, let me say that one. Let me ask that question again. We don't want to cultivate sin in the lives of our kids, do we? Which means no, we don't. (laughs) We don't want to do that. We want to cultivate holiness in the lives of our kids. But if I provoke them, I'm not cultivating holiness in them. I'm not. I'm just not. I love my kids best by giving the gospel first. And that doesn't look like selfish anger, sarcasm, or whatever it looks like for you. So you get the negative command first, fathers. And then you get the positive command second. Don't provoke your children to anger, but instead do this. Bring them up in the discipline and and instruction of the Lord. Now we, it's striking here, we typically think of discipline in a negative, as a negative thing, right? You do something wrong, you're going to get what? Disciplined. But Paul puts discipline in the positive commandment here. Like discipline for Paul isn't a a negative thing, it's a positive thing. And it's helpful for us to remember that there are two types of discipline. One is corrective. Yes, if my children sin, I need to correct them in faithful ways. Don't I? But more than that, I mean, yes, that, but not just that, there's a thing called formative discipline. Informative discipline is the sort of thing you get on an athletic team. Formative discipline is the sort of thing your coaches give you in the batting cages or when you're doing drills, right? Your body is learning to move in certain grooves and you're eager to do it because it's going to make you elite, right? That's a form of discipline, isn't it? It's not correct. It's not that you've done something wrong, you've sinned, and you need to be corrected. It's that you're unformed and you need to be formed. There are skills that need to be learned. And so yes, we need to think about corrective discipline. When my children sin, they need to be corrected and they need to learn that sin is dangerous and harmful and will destroy them. But beyond that, I need a bigger view of discipline as a formative thing, right? So if, if, if when I'm on a sports team, if I'm coaching baseball, which is over now, thanks be to God, (laughs) right we're going to get out there and we're going to just to go to the batting cages and we're going to talk about how important it is to get your arm up when you're making a good if you want to make a good throw and now like if you're looking at the ground you're probably not going to hit your target right i mean these are the 
formative things, right? Keep that elbow up. Turn your body. Like all of the skills you need to be able to strike a baseball or softball well. We work on those. And it's, we're not running from that. We'll pay people to teach our kids that kind of stuff, right? Formative discipline. So what's that look like in a Christian home? Probably, like, <laughs> we don't have to reinvent the wheel on this one. You already know the answers. Read the Bible with your children. Formative discipline. Teach the gospel to your children. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus took your sins. You're a sinner. Jesus loves you even though you're a sinner. He wants to set you free from your sin. He took your sin upon himself. He wants to give you his life. Preach the gospel to your children every day and live it. Daddy's a sinner. Mommy's a sinner. I sinned against you when I did that. I shouldn't have done it. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I'm so thankful to God that He's forgiven me in Jesus because I'm a sinner and I need that and, and, and we want to be free from that. And the Lord wants to work in us and He wants to give us peace and He wants to bless us, but we can't do that if we run after the darkness. Formative discipline. Here's how you pray. Formative discipline. Hear the songs of the faith. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Hey, we're going to go serve at the church together as a family. Formative discipline. And here's the thing, friends. I'm going to get, I'm going to, like, sometimes you all come to me after services and say, you really stepped on my toes today, preacher. And I usually say something like, if I can step on my own, I'll figure I'll get a few of yours too. And I've been trying to step on some of mine today, so if I get yours while I'm at it, just it's part of it. We will pay ungodly amounts of money to get people to give our children formative discipline in athletics. We find it very difficult sometimes to give them formative discipline in the gospel. Just let that sink in for a second. not saying not to play sports. I coach my kids' little league team. It's not what I'm saying. I am saying I want my kids to love Jesus more than they love baseball. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I'm not sure about that. We're working on it. <laughs> but that's what I want. Because when they're 75 and they can barely stand up or let alone swing a bat, I want them serving the Lord. And worshiping him. And I want that for you. And I want it for your children. The Lord wants to bless your kids. First commandment with a promise. <laughs> Jesus wants to bless your children. <laughs> it's very hard for him to do that if they don't know him. We love our kids best by giving them the gospel first. It's more important than anything else. I want my home 
It doesn't always work out this way. We're trying to get better. It's a work in progress, but I want my home, I want the tone of my home to be gospel-saturated. On this Mother's Day, I'm exceedingly grateful to my wife. Sometimes when I'm running out the door off to work, they are singing hymns and they are reading the scriptures. And our home has a gospel tone to it in that moment. And it's good. It's so good. Build it into the day, folks. It's, it's too important not to. This word discipline, in Paul's Greek, Paul wrote in Greek, it's been translated into English for us. The word is paideia. If you know the background of this word, you know that Paul really has formative discipline in mind. Paideia isn't just like a spanking or take me out to the woodshed kind of thing. That's not what he means by discipline. Paideia in the ancient world is enculturation. It's music, it's arts, it's politics, it's religion, it's theology, it's how you tie your shoes, it's how you wear your clothes, it's what music, all, all, everything. Bring your children up in the paideia of the Lord is not give them a whipping every now and then. Or ground them when they do something wrong. It is give your children the things they need to build Christian culture. That's all inclusive of all of our lives. Hey mom, I was at school today, this weird thing happened. Are we equipped to help our kids process that weird thing that happened at school in light of the gospel? I saw some friends bullying another or I saw some people, some friends bullying another kid on the playground or at the lunch line. Do we, do we automatically go to how does Jesus want us to embody the gospel in situations like that? Hey, somebody wants me to help them cheat on an exam. Do we automatically go to, how does, the gospel, how does Jesus want the gospel to govern these situations? Can we give our kids this thoroughly saturated gospel vision that touches every aspect of their life, everything they do, everything they think, so that when they leave us in a few years, when we send them out into the world with all of its craziness, that they are solid and not just chunked around by every last random voice that shows up that wants to destroy them. Have we given them life? We love them best by giving them the gospel first. In the context of your home, this is your job, not mine. A lot of times, we kind of think if we'll give them a little Sunday school and a little Wednesday night, we're good. Friends, the church is not the primary discipler of your kids. You are. It's your pastor's job to give you the tools you need to do it well. We're working on that. I'm super excited about our new family, Pastor. We spent a lot of time talking about what does it look like for us to put parents in a position to succeed with their kids? How can we help you? 
how can we give you resources for discipling your kids in light of the chaos that is happening outside in the world? And we're going to keep doing that, and we are going to ratchet it But if parents do not take that responsibility themselves, like two or three hours a week ain't going to do the trick. Following Jesus is a lifestyle, not an elective. It's not something we pick up on the side. It is something we are immersed in. And our homes will, whether we like it or not, carry a tone and it will be gospel-driven and Jesus-saturated, or it will be something else. And whatever it is, is the primary formative dynamic in the lives of our children. We love our kids. We love them best by giving them the gospel first. We can't. We can't delegate that. can't give it to their teachers we can't give it to their pastors we're grateful for our Sunday school teachers we're crazy grateful for VBS a lot of people are going to work hard to do all those things but those things are there to help you be in a position to be successful at home Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12 says the work of the pastor is to equip the saints that's you for the work of ministry, your primary ministry, if you have children in your home, is them. Number one. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.